Hello and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you've left for me in the comments section of my Q&A videos or have sent to me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com. I wanted to uh, let everybody know, in case you hadn't noticed on my channel, that I have now begun the series I was threatening to do for a long time now on the basics of Scientology. That has officially started and uh, will probably be rolling out on a fairly weekly basis uh, every Thursday. Uh, we'll be putting these things out. Some of them might take a little bit more than a week to research on, uh, on a couple of these topics now that I'm looking at you know, what it's going to take to really dig into the details of where Hubbard came up with some of this stuff and talking about the pros and cons of it. But, um, but I think for the most part we'll be rolling these things out and it'll be uh, fun and interesting and, uh, and I look forward to your feedback on those. And I also want to um, encourage you guys, if you have not checked out that video that I made a couple weeks ago about Bill Gothard and the IBLP, the Institute in Basic Life Principles, I really encourage you to check that out as a, for those of you interested in Scientology, I think you'll find uh, fascinating and horrifying parallels uh, between these groups and um, of course the, the Gothard thing has, has actually, you know, reached out into society in a number of ways and through, um, you know, some political connections and stuff that are also equally horrifying. So. Something I want to get out there and expose and let people know about um, so that we can do something to curb the influence of these uh, destructive cult groups out there. That is the purpose of, of why I, I do what I do here. So that all being said, we've got some great questions this week, so let's go ahead and get to it. Ludwig Sebastian Whitman. Hey Chris, love your work. What references to National Socialism does Hubbard make in his body of work? Seems to me that he was fascinated with Hitler. To my knowledge, he never says so, but his fascination with building an organization that is inherently fascist does hint in that direction. Also, I want to remind you of a question I asked in the commentary section of an earlier Q&A episode where I asked you about a reference in Blue Sky to Hubbard making splatter movies. Well, I don't know anything about Hubbard making splatter movies. Uh, you might have to re-ask that question because I looked and I couldn't find it. Um, so anyway, just go ahead and resend me that one, Ludwig. But um, as far as the Nazis or the National Socialist Party or National Socialism, Hubbard didn't really talk about it a lot. And um, this is kind of uh, the reason I'm bringing this, answering this question is because uh, it's similar to uh, an earlier question. The questions have also been asked about Hubbard with uh, Stalin and you know Pol Pot and you know the other totalitarian uh, leaders and, and and totalitarian authoritarian systems of, of government and you know whether Hubbard was involved with those things studied those things you know modeled Scientology after those things um, Hubbard's references to Nazis were always in the negative uh, you know Hitler was a bad guy. Um, there was one reference he made to Hitler being sent into Germany in a, in a uh, curtained off or blacked out uh, train car from, uh, from Russia, some sort of conspiratorial sort of thing that Hitler was, was uh, planted in Germany as, as some sort of, uh, you know, uh, installed uh, dictatorial leader or something, I don't know. It's one line of one policy letter. Hubbard did not elaborate on it that I ever saw other than that one line. 
Um, but Hubbard was uh, put out a lot of writing and that was anti-totalitarian, that was anti-authoritarian, and and positioned Scientology as the thing that was the remedy or cure for authoritarianism and for uh, enslaving man and, uh, and you know my man, I mean mankind, right? Um, he was kind of you know always positioning Scientology as the antithesis of those things, and I think from a PR, you know, from a from a positioning perspective, that's of course what you would want to do in in setting up an authoritarian totalitarian control system. You want to make it look and sound like it's 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 the exact opposite of what people recognize as authoritarian, you know, totalitarian control systems. And Hubbard was really good at that. He did it over and over again throughout his writings where he contrasted Scientology with these things in the same way that he contrasted Dianetics with hypnotism. He right Dianetics has elements of hypnotism in it, right? Like right from the very start there was a a countdown, you know, to one, you know, tell a count from one to ten, and you will be in a reverie state, you know, and your eyelids will flutter, and and uh, you know, you're basically putting somebody in a in a trance state. And Hubbard took great pains over and over again in the 19, in 1950 to position Dianetics as the as the solution to or the counter of hypnotism by saying that. You know, in hypnotism, they're putting people to sleep, and in in Dianetics, we wake them up, right? So it's it you know it sounds like this witty little line, but really, Dianetics is putting people to sleep. It is putting people into a trance state, and it is installing post-hypnotic suggestions, right? Uh, it, it actually suggestions during and after the 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 counseling sessions. So Hubbard can can make witty remarks about how Dianetics is not hypnotism and is this is the counter to hypnotism, but that doesn't mean that it is right. And it's the same thing with with Scientology, with uh, with the Nazis. I mean the knowledge report system, the ethics system, the the uh, the controls on every aspect of a person's life, the lack of privacy that Scientologists experience within the church, all of those things are earmarks of totalitarian control systems. But because Scientologists believe that it's all for the greater good, right? Because Hubbard, Hubbard, again, took pains to say that it had to do with one's intentions, right? You might use totalitarian control methods, um, and Hubbard didn't word it that way, but when he was justifying the, the you know, heavy ethics, uh, knowledge reports, these control systems, he would say, but of course, you know, yes, those look like totalitarian control systems, but, you know, we have the best of intentions. We're freeing man. We're not enslaving man, and therefore we have to exert a certain degree of control over people in order to keep them in line because their reactive mind is the thing that is throwing the monkey in the in the works, right? It's the thing that's that's making everything, uh, you know, bad and chaotic and horrible. It's the it's the efforts of the reactive mind to resist being eradicated and done away with that we are fighting against, and the reactive mind will take control of people and will will make them. Uh, act in destructive ways and make them act in in ways that are against their best interests. So we have to exert more control over them 
then their reactive mind is exerting over them and therefore that justifies our use of these control systems, right? That's how Hubbard explained it to Scientologists and they totally buy it. I mean, I absolutely bought into that thinking that Scientology had nothing but the best of intentions and therefore all of this stuff was justified. Now, I can't speak intelligently as to whether Nazis told the people, you know, who were, who were in the Nazi party or who were following the Nazis, whether they told them that same line of logic to justify why the Nazis were doing what they were doing or whether that's what Stalin did. I, I, you know, I don't know. I, um, I, I, I know they sold them a bill of goods on a lot of ways in coming into power in the, um, you know, in the night during the 1920s. So uh, was that one of their lines? I'm not sure, right? Did Hubbard learn from the Nazis as far as how he established his system? I, I don't know, you know, because Hubbard never fessed up to it as such, and he didn't really seem to be much of an expert when it came to the history of, the, of National Socialism or, or Germany or World War II. I mean, he was involved, but he was not involved in the European theater. Uh, he never fought Nazis directly, as far as I know. He, he screwed around on the coast of Oregon and then got sent down to Australia and messed around down there and then got shipped home. I mean, he was, you know, he was really hardly a figure in the war at all. So I don't know how much direct uh, education or experience Hubbard had with, with Nazis. But he doesn't, you know, he doesn't, he only talks about them in a negative light to, to directly answer your question in terms of Scientology materials. And he, and he positions Scientology against it, like I said. So that's, I don't know, I think that's about uh, all I can say on it, except to, uh, to reiterate something I've said before also, which is that uh, I think that cult, destructive cult leaders don't have a manual or a playbook that they go to. Somebody could easily write one with all of the information that we have to hand now about how destructive cults are put together. And I think uh, there have been some satirical videos made and, and stabs made in that direction. But, um, but I think that when a destructive cult leader starts a group and starts you know, seeing how it operates and what he has to do in order to get control of people and keep control over people, it, it organically evolves into these totalitarian control systems. And there's only so many things you do in order to run a system like this. And so I think through a combination of just organic evolution and you know, knowing a little bit about what people have done before that might be useful, like Hitler or Stalin or Pol Pot or whoever. Um, maybe these destructive cult leaders use that material in coming forward, but I think it's more organic uh, in how it evolves. I don't think that, um, you know, Manson or Hubbard or Jim Jones or these guys, I don't think they went and studied, okay, what did Hitler do? Okay, that's what I'm going to do. Right, I don't, I don't think that's what happened, but that's just pure speculation on my part. So there you go. Amanda Burke, are there things about your life in Scientology and the Sea Org that you miss? Are there things that you missed out while being in the Sea Org? What are those and have you created a bucket list to accomplish those things? Okay, so are there things in the Sea Org or Scientology that I miss? I miss uh, a couple things. I miss, one, I miss a lot of my friends. 
that I had uh, when I was in. They were really great people. And I'm uh, to this day sad that I have not been able to reconnect with uh, a lot of them because they're still in and might still be in for the rest of their lives. And that's kind of sad to me. Um, and the other thing that I miss, honestly, uh, on a personal level, is the, the surety, the certainty that I knew everything there was important to know about life and how, and death, you know, and what was going to happen after death and that I was going to keep living, that there was no death, right? Uh, and, the, and the surety of, of being able to deal with people in my environment from a position of authority that I knew how to help them. I knew what was going on with them in their head. I could peer into their into their psyche, you know, and sort of see what was going on. And I don't mean telepathy. I just mean I, you know, had all this information from Hubbard about why and how people operate and why they do what they do between the, the, the tone scale and the reactive mind and evil intentions and all the various things in Scientology that explain human behavior. I thought I had it really taped. And I thought I, you know, it was all, it was a very small list of things uh, that, that caused people to do what they do. And, um, and to be absolutely sure that I was right about all of those things, right? And so now that I'm out and I'm, you know, exposed to the real world and all the complications and, and uh, nonsense and tomfoolery that goes on, um, and seeing, you know, and having, been, having all that surety stripped away because Hubbard was a con man and a liar and very little of what he said was original to him, and, uh, you know, and, and he just, he, you know, and all that certainty and, you know, we know what the problem is. I mean, all that's gone. So now all the complications of trying to explain and understand why people do what they do and, and how people do it and all that. I mean, that's now it's just, a, you know, tons of question marks and tons of new things to figure out and, and, uh, and much more involved and complicated uh, you know, questions and answers, uh, you know, because we get into sociology, psychology, neurology, uh, like, like all these things as, you know, as to like, why do people do what they do? So, so I miss that, you know, because it was, it made life a lot simpler. Life was very easy as a Scientologist and as a Sea Org member, uh, very uncomplicated. And I think that now that I sit here talking about this, I think that's one of the draws to destructive cult thinking is, or maybe not even destructive cult thinking, but just that, that level of simplistic thinking, the one size fits all, I understand what it is that makes people tick kind of thing, um, you know, that, that's rampant throughout pseudoscience and, and uh, you know, all these woo kind of things that people get involved in. They're looking for simple answers, and the and the unfortunate truth is that there aren't a lot of simple answers. So, so I miss that. Um, as to things that I missed or didn't, you know, put on my bucket list or whatever when I was in Scientology that now I can accomplish that that I am now doing right. Um, oh yeah, all kinds of things. I had a long list, and I mean I had a list of movies to see and TV shows to catch up on. Um, it was, I, I, it was long and I have caught up on all of it. I actually, I think, um, I haven't watched all the episodes of South Park. I think I watched through like season eight or something before I was like, okay, I think I, I think I got South Park. So I haven't watched the rest of it. 
Um, but I've caught up on all the movies, all the TV shows and stuff the, over all those years that I missed out on. Um, read some books. I have, you know, I have a whole two, three shelves of books. Um, you know, people send me reading recommendations all the time. I'm like, yeah, add it to the list. Uh, I got a lot to read and catch up on. But um, I did manage to get a little bit of travel in before I left the Sea Org. I traveled around in the Western United States and I had boots on the ground in every single state west of the Mississippi, which was really cool, except Alaska. Um, so that I managed to accomplish while I was in the Sea Org in the last years that I was in and actually helped me get my head out a little bit so I could get out of the Sea Org. Um, but I really would like to do some international travel. I really, really, really need to get to Australia and then uh, Europe uh, are my plans on that. And, um, and maybe, maybe South America at some point. Um, so that is, uh, Africa's not on my list at all. <laughs> just, to, just to make that clear. Southeast Asia, Africa, Antarctica, no, not on the list. Um, anyway, so I'd like to do some travel. I think that would be really, really great, but that's, you know, future sort of thing, not anything immediate. Um, and, you know, and, and, and all the things I'm doing now are pretty much the, the, the dreams that I had when I was still in, working for myself, being creative, being able to write, being able to talk to you folks and, and helpful and, you know, be of a, a helpful influence in some fashion through education and, and information and hopefully entertaining at the same time. <laughs> and, um, and just living independently, you know, I look around at my place here and I, and I, this is my place and, and everything here I've put here and uh, living with, you know, the woman that I love and, and being able to mutually create a life together. Those were things I really wanted when I was in the Sea Org. I mean, I was married when I was in the Sea Org, but we had a room. And it wasn't ever, you're constantly reminded when you're in the Sea Org that the things you own are not yours. And the spaces you're occupying are not yours. And the life you're living is really just one of sacrifice and martyrdom to the cause. You are constantly being reminded of this. So... Uh, so, you know, you would dream, I would dream while I was in of, of not having a life like that. Um, I would, I would, I would sacrifice, I would make the sacrifices that I made. Um, you know, I, I did those things. I can't say, you know, somebody held a gun to my head, but I didn't enjoy it. It wasn't something that I did because I thought it was fun. I thought it was necessary for the mission that I was on to save the world. So now that I'm not trying to save the world anymore, I'm just trying to get by and do what I can to help. Um, it's a whole different, whole different ball of wax, you know. It's a whole different ball game. So I guess that's pretty much everything I I can and should say at this point because I've probably rambled on a little bit much. But that's my answer to the question. Nick C. In Scientology's Legendarium, do Thetans have gender? According to the legend of Xenu, if I understand it correctly. The society over which Xenu ruled was not unlike the human society, so before Xenu started calling them in for tax audits, Thetans must have been male and female, or was it just their bodies? Thetans do not have a sex or gender of any kind. They are amorphous blobs of, of theta matter, right? They're not, they don't have existence in the physical universe as such. They have an awareness of the physical universe and location and um, 
uh, yeah, they, like, like where they're located is simply where they're aware of being located. There is no, there is no physical universe existence for a Thetan or a spiritual being in Scientology. So the whole concept of gender and identity in that fashion is, is alien to a Thetan. Um, it's part of the trap of the messed universe, the physical universe, right? Um, the messed universe, matter, energy, space, and time, right? The, the, the Scientology term for all of this. Um, it's part of the trap of this that sex exists and it is a sensation. Uh, Hubbard talks about the fact that Thetans crave and love to experience sensation through bodies, right? Bodies experience sensation and Thetans love it. They just, they think it's great, you know, to be able to experience that sort of thing because Thetans don't experience sensation as such. They don't have pain receptors and touch receptors and, and things like that because they don't exist in the physical universe. So, um, so they're simply playing this game of running a body, right, in the world, and it's kind of like a big um, LARP you know, game. It's kind of like a big online um, multiplayer, you know, game that Thetans are involved in, right? Like, we don't have a digital existence, like, like we don't, right? The, 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 we have an avatar, it exists in, the, in a digital world, that digital world is not reality, right? It's not a physical universe reality. Uh, so that would be an, an, an analogy to what I'm talking about, right? Where you, you know, you're occupying this, this other world and this person who's in this other world and experiencing life through their eyes in the, in the game world, right? But that doesn't mean that's you. It has nothing to do with that, right? Um, now, as far as the whole Xenu thing goes, something that's very interesting that I talk about in my book, um, because it's, it's not really ever talked about anywhere. I mean, everybody gets all oh, the Thetans and the, you know, the DC-10s and, the, and the, the volcanoes and stuff. But there's a lot to the Xenu story that is missed. And one of the things that's missed is that, um, yes, it was a human-like society before... Xenu uh, did his, you know, galactic genocide, but life was very, very different before that whole thing went down. There wasn't religion as such. There was not, uh, people didn't die. The bodies that people had, according to Hubbard, lasted nearly forever. I mean, they just lasted and lasted and lasted. They didn't really die. You could kill them, in, in accidents and stuff, and people, Hubbard talked about how people would sort of have, you know, accidents, uh, accidents to get rid of their body, and, and they knew that they were going to come back around and get another body. And he doesn't really get into female-male thing. I think bodies were created the same way we still do through sex, I think. But the Xenu incident... And all of the, uh, there was a lot of, after, after all the volcanoes and the explosions and all that, there was all this implanting that occurred where people were sat down and before all these, you know, screens and, and implanted with all these ideas. And uh, a bunch of those ideas had to do with religion. Hubbard says that all of Catholicism and Christianity was installed at that point, all the symbology of it with the crosses and the angels and devils and all that. And, um, and the idea of aging 
and mortality of bodies uh, came in at that point. And uh, obsession with, uh, if I remember right, uh, there was, you know, a certain degree of obsession with uh, sex. And, you know, because when you, when you decrease the amount of time somebody's living, then you increase the obsessive behavior about sex because sex results in more bodies, or you're making babies, right? Which results in more bodies for a Phaeton to inhabit after his current body dies, right? And when you don't have to worry about that, then sex is not really, you know, such a big thing. It's fun, it's a fun sensation, but it's not something you would obsess about as far as making babies and stuff, right? If you had a body that lived thousands and thousands of years, you know, having a baby and raising and, you know, making a family and stuff might not be such a big deal. Um, but if you needed another body, you know, if you needed more bodies to be being made, uh, so that you would have bodies to inhabit, you know, it, when, when your current body dies after 70 years, then you're going to obsess on sex a lot more. And that was, uh, at least all of what I just said is kind of, you know, Hubbard talk for uh, why this, you know, why sex is so important and why people obsess on it. So that's kind of part of that Xenu package. So life was, life, life was very, very different uh, back then. Right and and in, and Hubbard in creating this picture of this, I don't think he really thought the thought through very much because he compared pre-Zenu galactic life and livingness right in society to a 1950s, 19 you know 40s, 50s type of world: fedora hats, fire trucks, and society a lot like it is now. But it wouldn't be anything like it is now if we didn't age and if we were aware of our spiritual existence and the fact that we were coming, if we died, we were going to get, just get another body and keep going. Things like that would monumentally change the entire structure of society and you would not have a society anything close to what we have now. So Hubbard didn't really, I, I, he just threw all this stuff off the top of his head and I think he was, like I said, uh, many times, I think he was just making it up as he went along with, with a lot of this crap. And, uh, and that is why that whole Xenu story just falls apart when you apply any critical thinking to it on so many fronts. Uh, the science of it doesn't work out. The sociology of it doesn't work out. The, 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 the world building of it doesn't work out. I mean, it just, none of it makes sense. So, uh, and I never heard anybody uh, in the world of Scientology questioning these factors. A lot of uh, the material, a lot of the information I'm giving you wasn't, isn't part of OT3. It's not the stuff that people get when they just do the OT3 level. You have to also do this other thing called the Class 8 course, which is an auditor training course, that where Hubbard goes into a lot more of these details about the whole Xenu story. So you put all of it together, which is what I did when I did my book, and you get a much bigger picture than just the body thetans and the volcanoes and the DC, DC 10s, right? So, or DC 8s or whatever. I can never remember if it's DC 8s or DC 10s, but uh, anyway, that's what I can tell you about that. So, no gender for thetans, never had it, never will. Not part of the, not part of the picture for the uh, thetanic existence. Cindy Hall. 
First, let me say thank you for all the educational videos. I'm a sponge since Leah's new show. Every Scientologist like yourself says you all worked almost around the clock. Leah said no vacations with family, no movies, no computer, etc. It was work, work, and more work. Very little sleep, too. However, since the church is not growing and new buildings are empty, what do you do all day and all night working? What are you working on? What's a daily routine look like in all divisions, especially in the Sea Org? Well, when you're doing public delivery, when you're servicing public who have paid for courses or paid for counseling, then you're spending most of your time doing that delivery, right? As a course room supervisor slash teacher, I guess you could say, for Scientology, I spend a lot of time, all day, every day, really, uh, supervising classrooms. Um, that was a full-time job, right? And uh, when I wasn't doing that, when I was a supervisor, then I was writing letters to prospective students and, and calling people to get them to come to Scientology events or calling them to come back to course or calling them to put in more course time or figuring out you know, ways I could get my statistics up by trying to get people to start, you know, get through and finish a course within that week period of time because I had to get the stat up one more than it was the week before. And to the degree that I was successful with that, I'd be, yeah, I'm the hero this week. And if I didn't pull it off, stat went down. And yeah, I wasn't so great that week, right? So anything I could do to try to make those statistics move. And it's kind of like that for everybody in Scientology, where you're constantly trying to do more than you did the week before of whatever it is that you're doing. If you're a letter writer, you're trying to, you know, you're writing, you're sitting there writing letters all day to people who have bought courses or bought books or something, you're trying to entice them to come in and do more services. Or you're calling people. I spent a lot of time on the phones when I was in Scientology, trying to get people to come back into the church. Um, sometimes you'd even go out knocking, you know, door to door. Hey, uh, would you, you know, you, you did some services 10 years ago and, and I'm here to get you back in, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, selling books on, on the street. You know, when people are walking by, that's an activity that Scientologists do, or trying to body route them, meaning, you know, you meet somebody on the street. Hey, would you like to come in for a free personality test, right? And there are people who spend all day doing that, just st standing outside trying to draw people in and, uh, and get them to do the tests and, and get hooked into Scientology. So, uh, you know, all kinds of administrative work, uh, keeping the books straight. And, you know, even if you're not making a lot of money, you still have people in Treasury who are keeping the files straight, doing tax audits. Um, you know, they never really had a lot of trouble uh, keeping busy when they were there. But you also have a lot of um, activities where, you know, you have all these different people doing all these different jobs. Um, you know, the sales guys trying to, you know, make money all day by trying to figure out what prospects they can call and then calling them and trying to do a sales job on the phone or by email or in person. So, so everybody's kind of busy all the time trying to drum up business or service the business that's there. Then you, but you also have um, these all-hands activities, they're called, where everybody has to not work on their job right now. They have to work on this other thing, which is either writing letters to get people in, or um, over the last 10 to 13, 14 years or so, selling these basics packages of books and lectures that, that uh, Miscavige had put together. 
So you have all these materials that are worth, you know, I don't know, they sell them for a few thousand bucks. And everyone spends part of their day trying to contact people, or almost everyone, trying to contact people and sell them these, these books and lectures, right? And get them, uh, through, through doing that, making money for the church, but also ostensibly trying to get them to come back into the fold, and it's a big recovery activity. Uh, in the Sea Org, you also have other jobs. Um, I mean, you have a motor pool, you have estates work, you have, you know, grounds work, you have people who are keeping up the property and, and uh, you know, stocking the bathrooms and painting the walls and uh, that kind of work, right? Or renovations, you have renovations work that goes on. So you have people doing that. Or uh, when there aren't enough people to do that, then you'll get one of these all hands things where, you know, a, a bunch of people who have other jobs have to spend some of their day, you know, working on estates work. Uh, this, you know, this is kind of Sea Org specific. Um, and then, of course, in the Sea Org, you have promotion activities, marketing activities. You have these guys up at the international base making commercials and graphics and, you know, work like that uh, for international Scientology promotional activities. You have those events that get put on where Miscavige goes up on a stage and, and talks at people for a couple hours. It is hard to comprehend, unless you've worked on it, how much work goes into an event. Uh, I mean, just building the stage is days and days and days of work, weeks of work. Building those columns and the podium he talks in front of. I mean, all that work is custom work, right? And uh, painting and, and, and designing the stages. Even the ground that he walks on when he comes out on stage, they do these overhead shots and you can see these patterns that are painted on the floor. They're like, you know, a two or three second shot that happens during the event. We spent weeks painting those floors, you know, so that that would happen. Uh, so, you know, you get work like that that goes on, right? And uh, when I was on the RPF, that was one of the, the jobs that we had was, was setting up those stages. Uh, we spent weeks setting those things up. So, uh, so sometimes what might not look like a very big deal actually has behind it, you know, days, months, weeks, months of work, right, behind it. So, so it, can be, it can be interesting what you can fill your time with when you are obsessing on, uh, you know, things to do to clear the planet and make the world, uh, save the world from itself and follow the orders and directions that you're getting all the time. And, 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 and every, anyway, that's, I could go on and on and on about it, but I think you get the idea. Stephen Willis. Logics, Chris. I've been watching a few of Aaron Smith Levin's videos recently, and one thing in particular about him has made me curious. Aaron is clearly quite a successful guy thanks to his research firm, but this success only came after he was declared. Given Scientology teaches the life of an SP is meant to be a terrible existence, mired in chaos, how would Scientologists rationalize Aaron's success when his life should be in pieces? Back when I was a fundamentalist Christian, my church would have rationalized any successful business owned by a major sinner, like a brothel for example, as being assisted by Satan and his dark forces in their crusade against righteousness. Does Scientology have a similar mechanism to explain away success where it shouldn't exist? Yeah, I've talked with Christians about this and people who used to be involved in, in those kinds of things, but 
I think there's a difference with Scientology um, because, you know, there isn't a Satan figure as such in Scientology, some, you know, evil malevolent force that is constantly like, you know, preying on man. There's a reactive mind, but it's not really a, a, a sentient force. It's, it's sort of personified as, as the sort of this independent thinking thing that, you know, preys on you, but it's really, you know, just part of you. Um, so, in the, it, I think this is one of the reasons why in the world of Scientology, disconnection is so important. Because when they cut ties to a suppressive person, Scientologists don't think about those people anymore. They don't look at them, they don't pay attention to them. You'd have to become famous, like, you know, Leah Remini, to even get on a Scientologist radar. Uh, in terms of success following, you know, being declared as a suppressive person, right? And of course, the Church of Scientology does nothing but denigrate Leah's and Leah's success and Leah's uh, status as, a, an, as an actress in order to, you know, convince Scientologists that she's failing miserably and she's, uh, you know, just, just doing what she's doing in some desperate grab for money and blah, 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 blah. Uh, all bullshit, by the way. Leah's doing just fine. But the church has to make statements like that about her to, to deal with its membership who are going, yeah, what, you know, what's up with Leah? But somebody like me, for example, I'm doing great, right? I'm, I'm very happy with my life and things are moving along at, at, at exactly the way they need to be going, right? Um, I could use a few more Patreon supporters, but, but other than that, hint, hint. But, uh, but uh, you know, success-wise, I'm doing fine. But Scientologists aren't going to know that because, you know, they can't have anything to do with me. The, that wall that comes down on disconnection is, is an impervious wall, right? It's supposed to be. So, uh, so Scientologists don't really think about or watch or look at ex-Scientologists and go, why are they successful when they shouldn't be? They just put it all out of their head entirely, right? And so, you know, if, if they let it in, if they let, you know, news of us into their lives, then that's already a sign of disaffection with the church that they are even looking in our direction or paying any attention to us. And of course, they'll see that we're doing just fine for the most part. And, uh, you know, there are some people who come out of the church who have an extremely rough time and are not successful and, and get into all kinds of trouble. But, but, I, but there are also, you know, I think there are more of us who get our feet on the ground, figure out what we're doing, um, get acclimated to the, the, the real world, and just kind of get on with our lives and make something of ourselves. And I, I think I see that more often than not. And um, so, so Scientologists just basically don't pay attention to us. And I think that's really more of the strategy for, with disconnection to deal with that question, okay? In the Christian world, you don't have such a stringent and enforced wall of, of distance and disconnection that occurs, right? In some places you do, but, but for the most part, Christians still see and, you know, interact with former members. And so they're, they're more open to that. So they have to come up with some rationalization or justification for why that person left the church and is still, and is, and is still doing well. And so you get the whole, well, Satan must be helping them with their lives and stuff. And, 
you know, this kind of stuff. So uh, anyway, that's that's sort of my thinking on, on that in a short answer. Whoa, it is time for flash answers. Nick Aloya. So when you marry in Scientology, is it an eternal bond? Do they address this in their marriage ceremony? Obviously, this would make it tricky when you have to pick up a new body. No, as far as I remember, it is not an eternal bond. Um, you have your lifetime that you're in right now. You would get married with a person, and if you so chose, you and that other person might say, oh, we're together forever into eternity. But it's not a church-mandated or ceremonial thing, as far as I recall from the marriage ceremonies. Richard Brighton. Now that Scientology have their new movie production company, will they try and make mainstream movies? For example, blockbusters. No, I don't think you're going to see efforts in that direction because it costs a lot of money and investment and time and, and resources in order to make a major motion picture. And I don't think Scientology is quite up to speed on that yet. They, um, they put together the productions that they put together, but I don't think that's where their efforts are going to go. Uh, if they do, they'll be, you know, pretty massive failures, of course, which would be kind of amusing to watch. But so far, they haven't even put out, you know, much in the way of commercials or, sh or short films. So I think they got a long way to go before they're going to be doing anything, you know, really big like that. Linda Richards. Is the ratio of men to women about even in the Church of Scientology? Yeah, I think so. I, I don't uh, have any, you know, there, there, are, there seem to be more in the C organization especially, there seem to be more women in senior position, senior executive roles than men. Um, I think Miscavige likes it that way for some reason, although I'm not really sure what, what drives that uh, with him. But, um, but in terms of a ratio of membership, I think it's, I think it's pretty even. Okay, so that is our show for this week. Uh, as I mentioned during the show, so uh, so like whatever, uh, patreon.com slash Chris Shelton is a support line for me if you're enjoying this show and this channel and what I am doing here. It is your support that allows me to continue doing what I'm doing, so please consider throwing some love my way by becoming part of that. Uh, really, honestly, that is uh, my number one thing that keeps me going with this channel and allows me, buys me the time that I need to do this work so that I can continue to educate, inform, and entertain you folks. So, uh, so please consider being part of that or throwing some love my way with the uh, PayPal. Uh, otherwise, hey, if you don't know, I've got a book out there. It's called Scientology A to Zenu, and uh, it's on Amazon.com, link below. Check it out if you have not done so. I think you'll find a lot of very interesting stuff about Scientology in that book. And uh, please share this video and my channel across the interwebs. Uh, I would like to get a wider, bigger audience, and you guys are the ones who can help me do that. Thanks a lot for coming around, and I will see you guys next week. Bye-bye.